You're about to listen to another Bonversation. If you like this episode, you can find more at johnlebon.com. Bonversations feature the most interesting and insightful people in the act realm and beyond. Every episode is made possible by people like you who value and support independent media. Now here's your host, JLB. How dare you! Our guest today has had a gun pointed at him. He's been arrested. They stole his property. He's moved multiple times to different countries. He's lived all over the world, Europe, Africa. Now he's in Canada. He's a podcaster, an author, and quite a prolific Twitterer, I have to say. And we've got so much to talk about today. So, Peter, it's great to have you on the show for Bombersations number 28, April 12, 2023. Our special guest coming to us from Canada. Peter, great to have you here. Thank you very much, John. It's good to be here. I feel honored when I've listened to some of your previous guests. I'm, I'm moved into good company. Well, you're a podcaster yourself, aren't you? And we're going to talk about that later on. But first, I have to say this right off the bat. You have lived a fascinating life, haven't you? You've probably lived more in your life than 10 or 20 people put together. <laughs> it, it's possible. Yes, I've had a really interesting life. It's had its ups and downs uh, both ways, but it's been good. And uh, I don't regret a moment of it. I've got a lot to talk about. There's a couple of topics that I want to drill into later to do with Africa and what, what's happening there, what people think is happening there, what you've actually experienced for yourself. But let's start with your podcast, shall we? You're a podcaster today. What kind of topics do you cover on your podcast? Okay, so our, I have a co-host who's much younger and better looking than myself. Her name is Kathleen. We are, our subtitle is Beauty and the Beast for a bit of a laugh, but it's actually called The Yacking Show. And we... Our aim, our editorial aim is to provide our business audience of entrepreneurs, small to medium business owners, and a few corporate marketing people with actionable tips and ideas they can use today and tomorrow to start improving their business and to ensure its survival in the turbulent times we're living in. That, that's our mission. And where do you find your guests for your show? Because we were talking just before we press record, you've interviewed a couple of times David Weiss, who is a very mm-hmm. well-known flat earth promoter i wasn't expecting to see that with your podcast i thought it was more business and uh, marketing strategies based but it seems like you interview a lot of different people from all different walks of life we started off doing that john and in fact let me tell you why we started the podcast we were sitting here in march 2019 uh 2020 should i say at the start of the lockdown and uh we kathleen and i were in other businesses online businesses together and we went to we normally went to a lot of networking events and i did a lot of public speaking and suddenly that stopped overnight so a number of our small business colleagues from the area we lived in in ontario said what do we do you know we we've lost out our audience so we said well we'll start a podcast we'll do a couple of episodes and uh, interview some of our business contacts give you a bit of mileage and see how it goes and we we also wanted to bring a bit of light into people's lives because everyone was doom and gloom and that's how it started. So we, we started interviewing local business people, authors, and more or less anybody who wanted to come on the show. And we realized that was not a good business model. So we refined it down to where we are now, where we only interview people who can provide good tips for our business audience. I'm looking forward to getting some of your tips later on, because I understand you were working as a door-to-door salesman for a while. And I've got this theory. Tell me what you think about this. Once you've worked in sales for more than a couple of days, once you've done it for a while and you've got the swing of it, you can never really be the same again. Sales teaches you about yourself and about people and the way the world really works. And I think I learned more in working five months in sales than I did in six years of high school. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that that would be my experience as well. Yeah, I had a brief period, wow, no, a year and a half in when I first went to South Africa. And I can give you a bit more background to that later, but I was a door-to-door salesman selling a wall coating. And at the time, I think it cost about, South African currency was the rand, six or 700 rand to paint an average house on the outside. And we were selling something called a marble plaster for about 2,000 rand with a 20-year guarantee. Hours of hard work. You had to walk around making appointments with the wives during the day and going back to sell husband and wife in the evening, getting bitten by dogs, commission only, putting our own petrol in our cars, using our own cars. And I sold enough to feed my kids and pay the rent. But after a year, I said, you know, I can't live with myself because um, this is a ripoff. So I left and I moved into life assurance, doing much the same, but feeling a little bit better about it. Did you have any formal training in sales or were you just learning on the job? No, I'd done a bit of sales in my first corporate job back in Rhodesian days when I was a sort of sales admin guy, but it was mainly selling to existing customers. Uh, Yeah, there was some selling. And then, um, yeah, then it was necessity. I had to learn how to sell because otherwise there was no social safety net in South Africa at the time. No unemployment, no benefits, nothing. You either survived by your own efforts or you got on a plane and went to a welfare state in Europe. That that was that was it. So you that's pressure to learn, believe me. So in these days you're podcasting. You have got a book. We'll talk about that later as well. And Twitter, you've amassed 15,000 Twitter followers. I'm going to ask you this. I feel like we've built a bit of a rapport here. Are those 15,000 genuine Twitter followers? That's right. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, I, I, I haven't bothered. I haven't wasted time on trying to work out how many are bots and how many are not. What I will say, though, most of that was organic growth. I started on Twitter back in 2008, and for some reason, I never really got in onto Facebook. I, I thought it was uh, a waste of time, and, and B, I just don't like putting too much personal stuff out in that sort of forum. I'll do it in others. So I'm on Facebook with business pages only and very little personal. But on Twitter, again, to try and put a bit of life in people's lives, I started putting a couple of good quotes out every day, and that seemed to attract a lot of followers. And then I got into a group of about 900 other authors and writers, and I promote a lot of them with a Follow Friday, and my hashtag is good people writers. So every Friday, I promote, I don't know, 50 or 60, no, probably 80 other authors and that seems to generate a huge amount of interest and, and lots of people follow me. So nowadays, I don't actively follow anyone other than guests on our podcast. And I just find people keep following me and then I'll follow them back. And your work through Fakeologist, where you appeared a couple of times last year, September and October last year, you appeared there. Yep. And you said something that was music to my ears. You described yourself as a Fakeologist. So obviously, you're familiar with what he does over there. And one of the topics that came up early was this coronavirus. So for the benefit of the listeners, why don't you tell us right off the bat, what is your opinion on 2020 and the three years that have happened since March of 2020 when this was declared a so-called pandemic? What are your views? Boil it down for us. Okay. At the bottom line is it's the biggest crime against humanity since Second World War, Pol Pot in uh, Indochina and the various other major man-made disasters in the world. The whole thing has got to be fake. You don't need to be a scientist to follow the science to work out that none of it can be genuine. In your part of Canada, have most of the mandates and the other restrictions, have they disappeared? Are you guys still feeling the effects of this thing? We're feeling the effects in a limited degree in that uh, we can't, 
I think May the 11th, I'll be able to fly to the States if I want. Right now, being unjabbed, I can't get, go into America, although people are doing it by road without any problem. The only mandate that I know of is that certain government sectors require their employees to be jabbed. And ludicrously, if you want to go to a doctor's office or hospital, you're supposed to wear a mask. I had an experience last week when I went to the hospital without and dug my heels in and told them what crimes they were committing by trying to make me wear a mask. And I had minor surgery done without once wearing a mask. I haven't worn a mask once, I'll be honest. So uh, that's about the restrictions we have now. We still have people who lost a lot of money by being put on permanent uh, leave or stop were fired, essentially fired for not getting the jab. And there's no compensation. There's various efforts to get them compensation. A lot of people have suffered very badly for this. Well, here in beautiful Plovdiv, Bulgaria, you wouldn't know there was ever a so-called pandemic. Apart from a lot of the stores still have these plastic screens in between mm -hmm. the staff and the customers. I don't know why they don't take them down. I don't know if it's laziness or what it is. But apart from that, you'd never know there was ever a so-called pandemic. And yeah. some people think that's because there never really was. But enough about all of that. Let's talk about you. So you grew up in Africa. You spent a lot of time in what's now known as Zimbabwe, and mm -hmm. also in South Africa. You then went back to Zimbabwe, and then 10 years after that, you found yourself in Canada. So you've got quite a story. We won't have time to get through all of it today, but can you boil it down for us? Rewind right back to your days in what was then known as Rhodesia, and sure. tell us how you came to find yourself all these years later living in Canada. Give us a synopsis of how this all happened. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the short version. So for, to start with, I was born in England. You know, I was born in London, true Cockney in London, my dad uh, worked for the British government. He got transferred to the Commonwealth office. He saw a posting for Rhodesia, and he'd been in North Africa during the war, and he'd been in India before the war. And England was pretty bleak after the Second World War, so he jumped at this posting. He applied for it. He got sent to Salisbury, Rhodesia. We moved there in 1956 when I was about five and a half. And... Um, it, it was an idyllic childhood because the climate is beautiful. Its summer temperatures are much like you have in, in Bulgaria. But if we got frost four times a year, that, that was a serious winter. So very rarely went below freezing. Winters were dry, beautiful sun, blue skies the whole winter. That was great. And cost of living was low. So after three years, the government said, you've got to go back to England. And he said, no, I want an extension. Um which he got, and then he got another one. But after nine years, they said, no, no, you know, this is unheard of. You, what they worry about is that their expatriates will get too friendly with the locals and um, perhaps get subverted or whatever. So he resigned, and he'd already hired, rented a little farm, and we had some dairy cows. He went farming full-time, moved to a bigger farm in the bush. Uh, I did well at school academically, but I had a clear shot at university my mother wanted me to go and be a diplomat or a banker or something boring like that. And my dad wanted me to join him on the farm. So to my mother's horror and my dad's joy, I went farming with him. But I found that um, sons and fathers don't always work together, work well together when it's on a full-time basis. And he'd started the farm on a shoestring. He had no capital, no inherited wealth. So we really struggled. And after three years, couldn't support both of us. So I left, got a job in commerce in the city. I uh, got married. Then the terrorist war started, so I was called up. Well, before I got married, I was called up for my nine months national service. I did 10 years part-time. Uh, started two camps of or two tours of four weeks a year. Then it, by the last two years that I was there, I spent six weeks army, four weeks at home. I missed most of the early childhood of my two boys because I was in the army so much. 
in the terrorist war. And then by the end of uh, late 78, South Africa was threatening to close the borders to our fuel imports. So we'd held out 15 years of terrorist war. We, we were winning it convincingly on the ground, no doubt about it. But we knew without fuel we were sunk. So reluctantly, our Prime Minister, Ian Smith, who was a British war hero, Spitfire pilot, who was shot down and everything, he um, went to talks on a a destroyer and then Lancashire House, and he reluctantly agreed to hand over the government to Robert Mugabe and Kenneth Kaunda, the leaders of the two terrorist factions. Uh, there were certain safeguards built in. They couldn't change the constitution. But we'd seen what happened throughout Africa as countries became independent. When I was a kid, we housed refugees, a woman and her daughter from the Congo, from the atrocities that happened there. And we we just seen it. So that's why we declared UDI. So 78, when the writing was on the wall, I thought there was two things that motivated me to move to South Africa. Point number one, what's the point dying in the war if your country's lost anyway? And point two, my kids need educating. So they were about, one was about to start school. So I moved to South Africa, working for the same company uh, or the, the group that I had worked for a subsidiary in Rhodesia. They promised uh, all sorts of things which didn't materialize. Because of exchange control, we could not take much money with us. Uh, it was about a month's salary. Uh, car had to be three years old. Furniture had to be three years old. And because of the situation in Rhodesia, I couldn't sell my house. I had a very small mortgage. So I had to go to the bank and give them the keys and say, sorry, try to sell, can't sell, here you go. Moved to South Africa, job fell through. That's when I got into, as we were talking earlier, selling permission only for a year and a half. And then I got a job in a big food company and was quite fortunate over 10 years. I worked my way up to marketing manager, made some good contacts. And when I hit the ceiling, being a marketing guy in a production and accounting oriented conglomerate, I knew that I wasn't going to get any further. So I left, started an export trading business with contacts I made, set up a food packing factory. I had a few really good years um, exporting to countries to the north who on paper were not dealing with South Africa, but were more than happy to receive our goods. And it went really well. I bought a little country estate, five acres, got horses, had the obligatory big BMW, sports car, the whole deal. And then the wheels fell off really badly in that civil war broke out in Angola and Zaire, which were my two major markets. And I had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of goods in transit. Uh, some of it disappeared on trucks and stuff on ships went into Volfus Bay and Southwest Africa and Namibia now because it was the nearest safe port, which shipping lines were allowed to do in times of war. And um, long story short, I lost everything. I personally guaranteed my company overdraft. I, couldn't, I lost everything. I went bankrupt. Couldn't sell my house because it was about the time they let Mandela out of jail. So now squatters are flooding into the country area where I lived. House was worth nothing. So for the second time in my life, I went to the bank and said, there's the keys. Uh, marriage broke up. My son had had two bad accidents, my eldest son. Uh, life was a bit grim. And, and being middle-aged white male, unemployment prospects was zero. Everyone was trying to appease the ANC and employ black people. And uh, my brother was still in Zimbabwe. He said, look, it's, it's fairly stable. Why don't you come back? So I did. And I didn't even have a car. I went back on a bus. Uh, the only car I salvaged from the bankruptcy, I gave to my ex-wife. and went back, uh, worked for my brother. He had a transport company, and we were doing two-way radios, and we were also liquidating a milk processing plant that had been set up by farmers. Uh, I worked about 14 hours a day winding that up. 
And then I started another business, and that did well for a year or two. And then I met my current wife, and we inherited her parents, her late parents' farm. So I sold my business, put all the money into the farm, and we had nearly 10 good years on the farm. We exported high-value horticultural products to Europe. We employed 180 people in summer, uh, down to about 50 in winter. We had our horses. We rode around the farm in the evenings. We had kudu antelope, smaller antelope, uh, warthogs, bush pig, huge pythons. We had a thousand acre farm, which was small for that area. And life was good until 2000 when the Mugabe lost the referendum and decided to blame white farmers for him losing the referendum and decided to start uh, putting truckloads of landless people from tribal areas on white farms. And over the next three years, 5,000 farmers were removed from their farms. Many were murdered. Many more black farm workers were severely beaten up or murdered. They all lost their jobs. And we held out for three years of intimidation, death threats. It got pretty ugly. And then finally, the police got me, put me in a cell for three days and nights. And it would only let me out when I agreed not to go back to my farm. So... I was Just on that story, let me interrupt you there for a second, yeah. Peter. So when I was doing my research for this, is it the case that you'd gone to the police because someone had stolen your pump or something, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then somehow you ended up arrested and you were yep. in the cells for three days, something like this? Yeah, let me let me tell you about that. You see, this is very hard for anyone in the West to, to get their head around, and it's totally incongruous. The police would actually help you solve a crime. But the moment there was a political angle to it, they would not, and they would work against you. So my security guard said, this big pump, it was our last pump. The others had all been stolen, and it was what we relied on for water for ourselves, our animals, and our our workers. My security guard said, I know it went. I tracked them to the boundary, and it's at the farm that's been occupied by these political thugs for a year next door. So I'm sure if we get the police, we can find it. So... Sue, my wife, said, whatever you do, don't go to the police station because they're going to arrest you. They, they'd been out twice to the farm to try and arrest me, and, and they hadn't managed to. On what, on trumped-up charges? Like, what was their story? Like, I'm guessing they had some reason well, to want to... The, the same as every other white farm. The government said that uh, white farmers were not allowed to retain their farms because they wanted to give them to black people. What they said was to settle landless peasants or landless tribal people, but in practice they were giving the, the better farms to judges, army generals, ambassadors, political cronies, right? And um, some were, were employing managers. Most of it, most of them, the farmers went, no, the farms went back to the bush, which is what happened to us. Some others, they did carve them up into plots for tribal people, but they had no way of surviving. So if you did not voluntarily leave your farm, they sent groups of 60, 100 people to intimidate you. It's called a jambanji, where they jump up and down outside your fence and beat on oil barrels and light fires and threaten to kill you. And, and a lot of people crack. They can't take that. So we held out six weeks of that on and off. And then when that doesn't work, then the police come in on whatever charge and just take you away. So they tried twice. First time I, I saw them coming and I went to the other side of the farm on my motorbike. Second time I got into the security fence and locked it. And there was a police Land Rover with a guy with an AK-47 driving and a plainclothes security policeman with a pistol next to him. They said I must open the gate, and I said no. And I had my nine millimeter on my hip, and I made sure that it was very visible. And um, they said we're coming in. I said no. If you drive through that gate, I'll shoot both of you because you're not allowed to do that. Whereupon the guy with the AK-47 got a bit nervous, and he jumped back in the truck. And now the security guy with his pistols is by himself, and he's only got a little. I think it was a 7.62 pistol, and I've got a nine millimeter with a big magazine. 
And he knew I was serious. So he said, well, we'll still get you. And off they went. But the third time I had to get a, put this pump back and I had no money to buy another one. So I went to the police station and I'm standing in the charge office and a police constable is writing the details down and saying, well, we don't have transport, which I knew. I said, I'll take you in my truck. Okay. And while I'm talking to him, security guard, security police, five of them came from behind, put me in handcuffs and carted me off to the security police office across the courtyard. And I had about six hours interrogation. I, I wasn't beaten. I wasn't tortured, but it was close at times. They accused me of insulting the president. They accused me of having arms of war. They accused me of disobeying a instruction to leave my farm. And my father had been in the Palestine police after the war. And when he was murdered by terrorists, there was an obituary published in the Palestine police magazine for him. And they sent a copy to my mother out of respect, who was in Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe. And when she went back to England in 2000, she gave me a whole lot of stuff, including that. Because we knew what was coming, we had started burning all our confidential documents. Anything we didn't need, we were burned. And we had a maid who was a sympathizer with the government. One was very good. She was absolutely honorable. The other one, well, she wasn't a maid. She had been a maid. She was now a farm worker. She decided to take this because it referred to the Zimbabwe government as terrorists and give it to the police. So when they arrested me, they said, here, we got it in black and white that you you believe we're terrorists. And that was on those grounds they chucked me inside. But it was really just to get me off the farm, intimidation. So I spent three days and nights in a filthy police cell of about 12 foot square. And at one point, there were 27 of us in there. I was the only white guy. And um, on the third morning, they dragged me into court. I'm dirty from sleeping on the floor, unshaven. They didn't even give me my boots back. And they went on and on about how I needed to go to Ramon prison. And I had quite a good black lawyer. And he said, no, no. So they let me out on bail on the grounds I never went back to my farm. And inflation was running in the hundreds of percent. The dollar was devaluing. We'd managed to sell some of our equipment. What hadn't been stolen, we managed to get a bit more off the farm and sell that. And my eldest son had moved to Canada in 98. And he said, well, why don't you come and look at Canada? So that's how I got to Canada. That is quite a story. So let's just go back to that arrest and uh, the core thing. Though. So I like explain to those of us who've never dealt with an African uh, criminal justice system. <laughs> so the judge basically says to you, listen, we'll let you go, but you can't go back to your farm. You have to get your stuff and get out of here. Yep. Yep. That was it. Ultimatum. He said, if not, if you do not agree, you will go to remand prison and your next court appearance will be in six months. And those remand prisons in the bush were awful. People, many people did not survive them. Right? And it being... Being a white guy in that prison would have been a death sentence. Being where I was in the police cell was a very humbling experience because every new black guy that was thrown in the cell during the night would come to me and call me sir and say, can you help me? And I'd say to, say to them, listen, I'm in more trouble than you are. You might not want to be seen talking to me. And you had to be careful as well because they put plants in there to try and get you to incriminate yourself. But these black guys were unbelievable. And everyone smoked in those days. So I'd smuggled cigarettes in in my jacket. And I'd take a cigarette, light it. We weren't allowed to smoke in the cells, so of course we did on principle. And after I'd smoked half it, I'd pass it to the next guy. He'd have a drag and it would go all around the cell, and they were all really grateful. And the next day, there's another incongruous thing that people in the West will find hard to believe, but there was virtually no food. These poor black prisoners were given 
some cold uh, maize cornmeal porridge, which was a staple diet, and little dried fish like a sardine floating in a bowl of water. It was terrible. But they were so hungry, they, they just gobbled it up. Whereas my wife and kids were allowed to bring me food. But because an opposition member of parliament had been murdered in a in a big prison a few weeks before, the government said that he'd been murdered by sympathizers by bringing him for poisoned food. So my wife had to taste the food in front of the police before she could give it to me. She was not allowed to pass me a whole dish. She had to feed me spoonful by spoonful through the chain link fence, right? And a guard did bring a cup of tea in for me. And these poor other guys, these black prisoners were so hungry that I said to her, when you come tomorrow, she was allowed to do that twice a day. I said, come tomorrow, bring double the food, bring as much food as you can. And once I'd had a bit, I said to these black guys, just go and see my family. They'll give you food. So she fed them also through the fence. And I said to them, go and see my son and my stepson were both there. I said, they'll give you cigarettes. So they gave cigarettes and we sort of hid them in our clothes. So I think on the second or third night, um, there were so many of us in the cell, we couldn't all lie down at the same time. So we would take it in turns, sitting up with our knees up by our chins. And I managed to get a corner spot. And about one in the morning, this black guy comes clambering over all the sleeping bodies. And he says, sir, I've got a cigarette for you. I said, no, no, I told you, go and get them for yourself. You know, he said, no, I did. Your son gave me two. So I took one for me and one for you. Here's the cigarette. Uh, John, this is a guy who probably will never live in a house with running water or electricity or have a toilet inside the house. He'll never own a car. I'd be lucky if he gets a bicycle and a transistor radio. And he's worried about my comfort. <laughs> you know what that does to you? I can only imagine. So you spent a few days in the cells. Then you basically were given an offer. We'll let you go, but you can't go back to your farm. And then they gave mm-hmm. your wife two days to clear out the property. What was the story there? We'd, we'd, we'd helped many of our neighbors with our trucks and pickups and that as it happened to them, because we were the second last farm still operating in a district that had formerly had 43 farms. So we, we'd been through this for other people. So while I was in the police cell, she had two days and all the neighbors helped, uh, even the ones who were off their farms, they still had their trucks and that. So they went in, took all our, she was able to move all our personal stuff out of our house. I'd moved a fair bit of my farming equipment out, but I hadn't moved all my chemicals, my irrigation piping, fencing, couldn't move that. So that was that was lost. We had, I don't know, we were down to about 20, 30, 25 beef cattle, about six horses, four dogs, six dogs, and two cats. The whole lot moved to my brother had a small 50-acre place, which was not a farm. It was more rock than anything uh, and not under threat of being taken because it wasn't uh, viable. He had quite a nice house there, and he had a cottage on there that my, my late mother had lived in before she went to England, and it was still empty. So he said, come come live in the cottage. Uh, so we had the contents of a four-bedroom big farmhouse and a whole lot of storage sheds trying to fit it into a tiny little two-bedroom cottage. So the lawn was covered in furniture. He had a big shed. We put a lot of stuff under there. And she got all that done in two days, horses, cattle, dogs, furniture, the whole deal done with you know, I'm talking probably eight trucks came to help us and eight different farming families came and uh, they just did it as we'd done for others, moved a whole lot in two days. And so what happened to the other families or other people that you knew? So you had your farm. I'm guessing you were on good terms with these other farmers in the area. Do you sure. know what happened to them? What was the story? What happened to them after you left? Some, some are still, well, they do, except for the one, who, and he's still on the farm because he collaborated with, and he also caused us many problems by collaborating with political thugs, right? He's still on his farm, and he's using part of ours without permission, which really pisses me off. Anyway, um, many of them 
Well, some have died of old age because it's 20 years now since this happened, right? So many went to Australia. Western Australia in particular, there's quite a few ex-Zim farmers. Some gone to England, a few come here, some gone to America, all over the world. We, Indonesia, other parts of Africa, they've just dispersed. Those who had money outside the country who had some either inherited wealth or had been putting money outside the country for years stayed in Zimbabwe. There's many still there because if you have hard currency outside the country, it's a very cheap place to live, right? It's the currency now, having been revalued several times, is, is still th- has gone over 300 to the US dollar. So it's quite cheap to live there if you have, dollar, if you have dollars or pounds. My son came to Canada, the, uh, put a lot, invested a lot of money. We started a vegetable growing operation. The Canadian authorities said, oh, you haven't got a university degree. You're 40, over 40. We might not give you permanent residence. So he said, stuff you, and he went back to Africa. So he's still there. Have you been back yourself at all in the last few years? No, no, no. We came here on holiday in 2003 to have a look at it, uh, decided it was probably a better option than the UK. With hindsight, that may or may not have been correct. Went back, the police were after me again because I couldn't keep my mouth shut, and Sue was pretty safe on my brother's place, so I came back here late in, in June 2003, I went home for Christmas, kept my mouth shut, came back February 04, haven't been back since then. So for listeners, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to cut in a clip. This is a one-minute clip from SABC News, and I'm going to describe it to you because you're listening, but this is a stadium full of thousands of people all wearing red as per their party uniform, if you can put it that way. This guy, Julius Malima, when I was in South Africa in 2010, people were saying that this guy was going to be the next president or one of the next presidents of South Africa. Now, I don't think his political ambitions ever got him that far. He might never become president. But this is a a well-entrenched politician in South African politics, not some fringe guy. He was the president of the youth wing when I was there in 2010. So this is no joke. This is a stadium of thousands of people. And listen to what this guy is singing. So, Peter, this is no joke. This is a real thing. Now, do all of those people wearing those red shirts singing these songs about shooting the boar, Mm -hmm. do they really want to murder white people? I don't know. But I think some of them do. And that's why when I hear people talking about what's happening in Africa and South Africa. I'm no expert, but I did spend a few months there when I was a younger man. And I do think there is a lot of resentment from certain people towards other people. And let's be real, a lot of the black people there, it's like they've been raised to believe that the white man is their enemy. Yep. Yep. More more so in South Africa, and I lived there for 15 years, than in Rhodesia. Uh, Rhodesia, up until the early 60s, mid-60s, was very, very peaceful. We had one of the lowest ratios of police officers to civil to civilians of anywhere in the world, right? Even even compared to England at the time, which was not a, a highly police state. There was a lot of petty theft, which there always will be when large parts of the population don't have the income that the other parts have. So understandable. But almost no violence until 
the wave of independence swept through Africa and we were told, having been assured at the break, that if Federation, Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia and the Esland agreed to form a federation, the British government wanted us to do that because Southern Rhodesia had the biggest white population and the biggest economy and they thought we'd pull the other two countries up. They guaranteed at that time that should federation be dissolved, we would go back to our pre-1960 constitution. When it happened, they reneged and said, no, you've got to hand over to, to black nationalists. And we said, no, and that's why we declared UDI. Up to that point, it was really, really peaceful. There was not that inborn hatred of either race by the other. There, there were odd incidents of you know, people who got out of hand, but by and large, it was really, really peaceful. Once the terrorist war started, it still remained for the bulk of the population. Black population was still still saw whites in a fairly benevolent way. The white government went out of its way to help black tribal people in times of drought by shipping in corn flour, maize flour, their staple, staple um, food, water, and other stuff. There was a lot done for the black population. The terrorists did intimidate the blacks horribly. I saw myself uh, old women who'd had their lips cut off by terrorists, black women in villages, they abducted hundreds of school kids. They took the girls as sex slaves and forced the boys as young as 12 to carry AK-47s and come back and fight. And, of course, they got killed. So part of the population obviously uh, sympathized with the terrorists and supported them. It was, in my opinion, it was fairly a fairly small part. The, the vast majority of black people just wanted to get on with their lives but were easily intimidated. And when you're unsophisticated, unarmed, poor, you'll grasp at anything that, and listen to anyone who promises you a better life. So I don't blame them for that. But that, that was the reality as I saw it. South Africa, a little worse. The, the ANC had been working far longer to build up hatred of white people. And I think in fairness, there were some of the South African whites had been harsher to the black people than we had in Rhodesia for a longer period. But it certainly... The evils of apartheid were magnified horrendously by the Western media compared to the reality on the ground. Well, I want to come back and talk more about this topic because this for me is something that I'm passionate about, and that's probably largely because I did spend some time in South Africa mm -hmm. back in the day. But we need to wrap up this first part of the call. Before we do, you do have a book. It's called Five Steps to Thriving on Adversity, Practical Steps, Insights, and Reflections from an Extraordinary Life. Now, I heard you tell Abdefakeologist that when you were putting this book together, someone told you, that memoirs don't sell well. So instead yep. you package 25 of your stories from your life and put it together in a book format like that. Can you give us just one or two of the stories that jump out the most when you look back at your life, the ones that made it into the book? Give us one or two stories. Well, okay. The one that, that, that perhaps means the most to me is is not uh, my story as much as somebody else's, but it, it stayed with me for 30, 40 years. So I'm in the Army. I'm a section commander. Uh, going through an area called the Chesa Purchase Area of northeastern Rhodesia. This would have been in the uh, 73, 74, 75, around about early 70s. And the Chesa Purchase Area was an area of quite fertile farmland that was restricted by the white government to black ownership. The intention was to encourage and enable a generation of black commercial farmers to find their feet and survive and prosper because most black farming was peasant-style, communal, uh, burn, cultivate, move on, and unproductive. 
to prevent the them being exploited by either smart black businessmen or white other white farmers, they were not allowed to transfer title to any person other than another black farmer. So I come in here, I've got my section with me. There'd been some terrorist activity, but it was fairly quiet. And I come to this little settlement of uh, traditional huts and one square brick and concrete house with, I think, asbestos sheet roof. It's a 400-acre farm. It's lush. There's grass everywhere. There's a small field being hoed by his wives and kids. And the old farmer is sitting on a stool with his back against the wall. It's sort of mid-morning. It's warm. And he's got a, a, a mug of traditional beer there. And we do all the traditional greeting stuff. And I send my guys out for security you know, on the perimeter and to keep an eye on. I have a chat to him. We were also trying to be good to the locals and hearts and minds stuff. I started chatting to him and I said, I noticed you've got quite a nice farm. How big? 400 acres. Uh-huh. I said, you're only cultivating maybe 10, 12 acres. Yeah. And I said, I can only see about 10 cattle and all this grass. Why don't you do more? He said, what for? I said, well, you could put electricity into your house for a start. He said, what for? I said, you can have a TV. He said, no, 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 no. He says, if I put a TV in there, I'll be expected to entertain all the villagers around. I'll never have any peace. Okay, what about running water? No, I have three wives, and the two young ones carry water from the stream. Don't need running water. What about toilet? No, you know, uh, traditionally we use the bush. Okay. Nothing that I could suggest to him made the slightest bit of difference. He said, he kept saying, I have enough. He said, look, I've got my wife and kids to cultivate. And I said to him, what if there's a drought and you don't produce enough food? Now he says, I'm careful. I always have enough to last me two years. Said, what if there's a drought two years, which can happen? Oh, he said, don't you know, your government will come and bring us food. So that stuck in my mind. There's a guy, he, he'd worked as a policeman. He'd retired and he'd used his pension and borrowed money to buy this farm. And there he has the potential to do a lot and have a heart attack. And he chooses to do the minimum and just enjoy life. And so uh, that was a basis of a speech that I used to do when I did a lot of public speaking, the paradox of prosperity. That guy was less stressed, less hassled and happier than practically every person I've met in the Western world. So that's one that's, that's one of my memories from that period. One of my memories from being in South Africa was that the people I met there, they did seem more relaxed and they did seem yep. more happy and in the moment. And I know yep. Africa, when you say Africans, we're talking about a diverse group of people. There's many different types of Africans, I get it. But I'm just talking about the ones that I met when I was in South Africa. Generally, the ones that I met were more in the moment. They weren't worried about yesterday and they weren't worried about tomorrow. They were just in the moment more than I think most Westerners are and certainly more than I am. And I would yep. like to be more in the moment, the way that these guys were. They, they had a different attitude to life that I can't really try to convey in words, but hearing you speak, it's bringing it all back to me. And that was yep. uh, 13 years ago. They just had it. I'm not saying they were all happier, and I'm not saying they were all peaceful, but there was just this vibe, it's just this energy that I, can't, I just can't uh, do justice in words, sadly, and this is a podcast. And we've come to the end of the first hour, so you're also a podcaster. You've had some crazy guests on your show, and I didn't even know you had interviewed not once but twice David Weiss. Yes, we did. He used to have a show called Deep Inside the Rabbit Hole. I'm not sure if he's still doing that. These days he's a prominent flat earth proponent. We're going to talk about him and some of these more esoteric topics, some of your other guests in the second hour. I want to come back and talk a little bit about sales and marketing and psychology because I think we're people and we deal with people every day. And sales, I think, once you've spent a few months in it or if you've studied it or what have you, you get a different perspective on people. And you look at something like coronavirus – why did so many people fall for it? Well, I think there are some things that you can take from learning about people, social psychology and sales and marketing, these kinds of things. 
I think there are some explanations that can come from all that. So we'll talk about that in the second hour as well. And then also the future of society. That was one of my favorite parts of your chat with the Fakeologist. So we'll come back. We'll talk about that. And, of course, what's really happening in Africa because we only scratch the surface in this first part of the call. So we'll come back for the second part of the call in just a moment. But for the listeners who are going to leave us here, let them know more about your work, your book, your podcast, your website. I'll put links to all of your stuff in the show notes below. But for hour one of Conversations 28, you've got the floor. Tell the listeners more about your work and where they can find what you do. Okay, we interview interesting people who give actionable tips to improve your business on theyackingshow.com, video and audio. Every episode's on the website and on YouTube and most podcast platforms. If you want my book, it's there under the shop. You can order it there. You've been listening to Bonversations. Find more episodes at johnlebon.com. We appreciate and thank all of the supporters who make this possible. Now have yourself a lovely day. It wasn't a tent. It was this magnificent thing. Who's cutting my clap? Where's Larry Crown? Remember, you got the flu. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once. Shame on... Shame on you. It fooled me. We can't get fooled again. How dare you?